Hello and welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds with stories from those of us who worship them, all set against the heartwarming and uplifting backdrop of the end of the world. This week, my special guest is Josie George, a writer and visual artist based in the West Midlands. Josie is the author of her memoir, A Still Life, published by Bloomsbury in 2021, and she has just finished a soon-to-be-announced new book. She's also a regular writer for The Guardian Country Diary and her own popular blog on Substack called Bimblings. Josie, hello and welcome. Hello, thank you very much for having me. It's great to finally meet you, so to speak. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good actually. The sun's shining. I got out this morning. So yeah, good day for me. The first thing I wanted to say was to thank you really for writing the page that you did for the into the red book that I worked on with the BTO about the the 70 birds on the British red list. So thanks so much for that. And you wrote about the marsh tit, didn't you? So tell us about that. Yeah, it was it was a, a bit of a challenge for me because obviously the brief and the whole focus of the book was about birds that are becoming increasingly rare. And yet my patch is it's mostly all the usual characters. I don't I don't get a lot of rare anything around here. So um but when it came to the marsh tit, I thought, ah, oh, that's one that I do see. Um, where I live, um, it's a very, very urban estate. It's lots of rows of old factory terraces. It's a, it's next to um, a whole series of industrial estates. But we have this, this patch of land, protected land of marshland. And when I was more mobile, I would walk there. Since I've become less and less mobile, I now... Uh, visit its edges on my mobility scooter and the marsh tit is one that very occasionally will come and and see me there and despite its name marsh tit actually doesn't like lots of, of of marshlands it prefers to stick to the edges of places um it prefers to hang out in the tree lines and the, the hedgerows around the edges of, of wetlands um and that's where i am now so it felt like i'd got this this really special connection actually with this with this rare bird and it's so unassuming it doesn't look very fancy and I I doubt many people even notice it or know what it is so so again the fact that it's overlooked the fact that maybe and and I I pass I, I write about this in the piece but lots of birders go to the marshlands and they pass me with their their cameras with their huge lenses and um, chatting about all the the fancy things that they've seen further into the marsh, um, where I can't get now. Um, but there is there is a kind of just quite a quiet satisfaction that at the edge I still get to see something special and maybe something that they haven't seen actually or maybe not noticed. Uh, there, there's there's a, a feeling of of yeah quite quiet victory in that, which is what I wanted to write about for the piece and and what I I felt so lucky to be able to include in the book. Yeah, I love that. And, and you're right. I think, you know, when you're, when you're a bird, especially, you know, photographers with all the kit and stuff, you, it's easy just to go to where you're going and to, to not necessarily observe everything on, on route to where you're headed. So I love that. And it reminded me as well a bit about a, a section in your book, A Still Life, where you talk about difference being not a spectrum, but a wedge, and that some people are more different than others and exist at that thin end of the wedge and it it seemed like you were you know you and the the marsh tit are 
on the edges or at the thin end of the wedge. Yeah, I, in the in my book, I talk about that being a place that the, the further into the wedge you go, the tighter it gets. The more the, 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 there's a squeezing to to life that means that you you don't fit so well, um, and that 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 life becomes it's harder to find space and harder to exist in the spaces around you and um, you're kind of compressed more and more into the the bits that you're able to access and um and it's funny that I think most a lot of my life is defined by that edge place not just because of my disability but because of of where my 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 environment is very much an edge place too the the edges of urban spaces and the the wild bits of nature that tend to exist there, which is very much that's my nature, that's my bit that I get to to see. So both me and my environment feel like this symbiotic edge beings I talk about um quite a lot. And there there is there's real company and and comfort in that that actually I yeah I am I am pushed to the fringes of things often, but there's quite a lot else here with me and we we get to form relationships and enjoy I get to enjoy that in a way that maybe other people often don't bother to or um or get pulled away from or don't get the chance to so yeah there's there's a lot of richness here in in the edge places it's fantastic and i think that at a time when maybe so much is said and written about the benefits of nature and the outdoors to, to mental health. There's definitely not as much said about the benefits to physical health and well-being. And that's something that you touch upon. Well, not just touch upon that you, you mentioned a lot in the book, uh, understandably. And there's a quote. I hope you don't mind me quoting you here, but um, you wrote much of the nature writing and poetry I read talks of connecting to yourself and the land by walking, exploring, by rediscovering wildness. But what if you can't walk and can't leave? What then? What if your wildness is dead roses and walled yards, mossy rooftops and cold neighbours? Yeah, and I think a lot of the narratives around nature, especially nature for well-being and and um, and yeah, the, the narratives tend to focus around mental health. Um, it's it's about getting away from your life almost. It's 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 about using yeah. nature as an escape route, as a as a, a way away from where you are, um, which of course has has numerous you know lots of benefits, and I can really see the appeal of that. But something quite interesting happens when you can't escape your life like that. When you you have to stay put. Um, and that to enjoy nature doesn't involve going somewhere else. You you have to do it here, where you are, and in the body that you have. Um, because I think that's that's one of the key aspects of disability. Is it's it's not something you can take off when you go for a walk. Um, it's not something that you can put down and escape from for a while. Um, it has to come with you, or as as is often the case, you, you can't go anywhere. So you you have to adapt the way that you're you're having that experience. You have to find a way of having that that sense of connecting with something different with the things that you may see around you all the time and that you you don't get a choice to to vary you 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 can't decide that you're going to go and and find somewhere a bit more different or interesting or novel or or entertaining or refreshing um it might be the same old 
environment that you've been stuck in for years um, or often in my case it might be something you can't even see there there are lots of days where I I can't really even get out of my room out of my bed so nature for me has to come in through sound through my open window through the odd time that I can sit and look out the window or my I'm, I'm smiling because there's uh there's a I'm sat by by the window now and I've got some window boxes and a, a bumblebee's just come and landed right by the window. And it's it's those kinds of moments of like not dismissing that as not enough, not not seeing that as not proper nature or not being a proper nature appreciator or um, like those taking these small moments, even if it is just sounds through your window and and really sinking into them and seeing that as a legitimate nature experience that's just as powerful, just as important as people walking next to the beach or up mountains or across the countryside. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I felt that after I read your book that I was seeing things a bit differently. I remember I went in to dump some stuff into my daughter's bedroom and it was a sunny day and the light was shining in the window and it was bouncing off like a little bowl that she had with it was shiny in different colors and the light was bouncing off onto the wardrobe and it looked like a mirror ball so i took a photo of it to show her later and i'm sure that's because i read your book <laughs> and it made me think that you know to do that and you know so your book made me start to see things differently i think that makes me really happy that's that's basically <laughs> why why i do this is is in the hope that that people can, yeah, not see nature or nature experiences. It's something that this is something that I talk about an awful lot in in my new book. Not to see nature experiences as something other that you you leave your life to go and see. They're around you all the time, pushing at your attention and wanting your attention. And that by by forever kind of creating this hierarchy of what's what's a proper nature experience, what's a more rewarding nature experience, we actually miss out on on some incredibly powerful moments that that happen around us all the time. Um, I am forever challenged and surprised. Each day, I'll often think, you know, maybe maybe that's it. Maybe I've had all the experiences that I'm going to have in this place. I've been in this house for 20 years, often in this house um, um maybe maybe i'm going to run out of things to see and i never do ever there is always something even if it's just a subtle variation everything is new all the time um and every day there is something different and i'm changing so how i how i view things and how i perceive things the connections that i make with things changes and so there's this constantly f- refreshing source of of inspiration and connection and beauty around me that is it really is infinite it doesn't run out yeah it's it's fantastic that you can that you can see it that way because i think that you know with birders you know there is a tendency to take a bird on a list and you've seen it and then move on to the next one and i think that comes from you, you know particularly boys when you first get into collections and you know counting birds and stuff like that you you get an i spy book or a pocket guide and you tick it off you you go right okay tick i've seen that one yeah yeah done that one one. yeah what's next exactly i've often thought what what we need and is is a bird book for kids where okay you might have the bird to tick but then have you seen a wood pigeon do a wing clap have you seen a wood pigeon 
nest? Have you seen this? Have you seen that? And it's not just ticking one bird because that's too easy. You know, you need to then observe its behavior and, and see all these other things about it. Otherwise, you know, you're just looking at it once and, and then dismissing it forevermore. And the thing is, is that I, I'm a big believer that it requires staying power to really build relationship. In order to build any kind of relationship, you it, it takes time. It takes sitting with each other for a long time. And um and that that is true of my environment. It's true of the birds around me. I'm not I'm not gonna get everything that I need to learn from them from these kind of transient encounters when I'm then okay, on to the next thing, on to the next place. And um by by revisiting and, and I think that's been one of the real real joys and gifts of having this very restricted environment in which I can get to. My my little patch is just a few streets that I can get to. And that's been where I've had to spend my time for years and years and years. But through those repeat visits, I've built really enduring relationships with the things around me, with individual trees, with, you know, plants, with just little bits of land that change over time and the things that you see there, the birds that come you feel like you're really getting to know them rather than it just being, like you say, a, a box that you're ticking, which just doesn't feel very fulfilling to me. I, I just don't think I would get a lot out of that, even if I was more mobile. So, I'm, yeah, I'm glad that I have had this, had to have this discipline, really, of staying with the things I have and seeing what happens when I do. Yeah. Um, the other sort of, or one of the other themes that I picked up on in your memoir is still life was the way you described connections and identifying connections, you know, whether it be from people from the past through their headstones or chewing gum under the tables at school, you know, the overhead wires and how everybody's connected through those and how you enjoy the wires. But I love the, the section on that you, you wrote about the dawn chorus. Yes, and which in that chapter, I talk about listening, listening to, to a dawn chorus and, and being able to almost visualize the way that that the sounds create almost like a circle around them, an area around them, which then overlaps with the bird a little bit further along. And this this kind of visual image of these sort of concentric circles or overlapping circles that spread from one bird overlapping another and a soundscape then overlapping another. And this stretching all across the country through the dawn. And I think that sense of connection and things being connected is very important to me I think not only because it's just true and the more time you spend in nature the more you you perceive those connections and the way that things are interrelated but I think just as a kind of antidote for loneliness um, my my life has been quite lonely and I think there's there is just immense joy and comfort in being able to then observe the way that nothing is separate and that where I am joins everything around me in these really powerful complex ways and that so that then even if I am on the edge even if I do feel separate I'm not it's an illusion that there is intricate infinite connections going on around me that joins me up with not only all of the nature and birds around me but the other people um and that that's something that i explore often that even when i am disconnected in some respects i can find ways of re-establishing and, and revaluing that connection 
that that means that I can see that my place here isn't separate. It, it is joined, joined with everything else around me. Well, I hate to be the harbinger of doom here, Josie, but I'm going to make it a little bit lonelier for you again now, because <laughs> the concept of this podcast is that you have survived a, an environmental Armageddon. We've let the world yeah. burn, which is going to happen in a few years, let's face it. And you are left in this desolate wasteland, but you get to now choose five species of bird to accompany you afterwards. Five birds that you can bundle onto the metaphorical ark to save from certain extinction. So we're going to talk about the five birds that you've chosen today and what they mean to you. So tell us about bird number one. one. So my first bird was the blackbird, I believe, which and it's funny that you should talk about a kind of apocalyptic wasteland because it, it can feel a bit like that here anyway <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's quite desolate around here often. Um, and so all of the birds that I've chosen are perhaps people might think see them as a bit boring um, or a bit ordinary I think it would be easy to see them as the kind of generic birds but I think it's because they survive and because they exist even in neighborhoods like mine that I love them so much and um, the blackbird is one for me um, there is a chapter in my book in which I talk about the fact that I have decided that the best day of the year is the day that I first hear the blackbirds singing again in early spring. Um, and there is something about that moment, which I know would sustain me through an apocalypse, <laughs> that when you've got, the winters are rough for me. I often have a really hard time in winter um, and I find the cold and the dark just awful. It's even harder for me to get outside, even even for my little trips around um, on my mobility scooter that I have. Um, I, I end up feeling really isolated. I, it's also my birthday around that time. So I have the whole existential crisis type thing going on in the middle of winter. Janu January is the worst time for a birthday. Um, but then come February, just as I'm feeling like I've forgotten what hope is and warmth is, I don't really know what I'm doing with my life. There comes a moment when I hear it. I hear that song again. And it's always more beautiful than I remember. It's always just makes my my chest clench with just beauty and feeling. And it's so simple and unassuming. And yet one day in the early spring, a blackbird nearby in one of the terraces decides that this is the day and he's going to sing his little heart out. And there is just something about that moment that stays with me the whole rest of the year. And I will often in those, just as the weather's starting to warm up a little bit and the blackbirds begin to get their confidence I'll sit on the doorstep in the evening because it's it it tends to uh, the the blackbirds tend to start singing around tea time I've found around that time and you can you can open the back door and sit on the back doorstep when the day is nearly done and just listen and oh it just does my heart good I love them I love I love their song and I love that the rest of the time they're so fighty and grumpy. I love I love blackbird's grumpiness. We, my, my boyfriend and I often talk about blackbird grenades 
the black blackbird grenades going off you know when they get really clucky and and, and angry about something and then they they kind of build up and then they explode at the end and, <laughs> um but, the, but even though they're they're so grumpy and territorial they they have this ability to just stop a moment and and just stop you as you sit and listen um so yeah please let me have blackbirds in the apocalypse i think i will find that a lot easier to handle if I can sit on the doorstep and listen to it. <laughs> it's a great choice, and it, it is actually one that you tend to think might be a, a boring bird, but they have featured on the podcast two or three times, um, so they do mean a lot to people. And I, I wonder if one of the things that a lot of us will have their first close-up memory of a bird, maybe it's feeding a duck, but maybe it's seeing a, a, a blackbird sitting on a nest, you know, it's your dad strimming the hedge or something, and it's like, oh, come and look at this, look what I've just found. And, you, you know, when you're a kid, you can get quite up close to a blackbird doing its thing. And it, I think it's one that you can learn quite quickly and it's quite distinctive with its yellow beak. And, yeah, I, I know that when my son was little, that was one that he could pick out quite easily. Yeah. And, yeah. Even if you don't know anything about birds, you know a blackbird, don't yeah, you? Absolutely. And, yeah. And and they do sound beautiful. They're they're lovely birds. One thing that always amazes me about blackbirds is what they eat. They will eat a lot of different things. You tend to think of them, you know, with worms and invertebrates and, and, and berries, obviously, in the autumn and what have you. But I've seen them trying to get things out of my pond. Um and I know <laughs> that in Scotland, one bird I read in Mark Cocker's wonderful birds, Britannica, he'd, he'd heard of a bird there that had learned to catch trout hatchlings in a rearing pen and then taught other blackbirds to do the same. So they used to go and go fishing, basically. I know. And there was another report in that book as well about somebody who'd seen a blackbird chasing a kingfisher, like like basically being a little mini skewer until it <laughs> dropped its fish and then stole its minnow. You know. <laughs> so, yeah, blackbirds, you know, I think we, we need to give them a bit more credit, definitely. Yeah, I do. I love them. I love them. Great birds. And I, I always used to think of them as the perennial panickers, you know, because you the slightest bit of danger and they're all banging on about it. And, but uh, no, they are. They're, they're great birds. And your second one's a great choice as well. Tell us about bird number two. Bird number two. two, two, two. So I think I think bird number two was the starling, was it? Was it, it was. Yeah. So the starlings are the bird here that I think I get to see I, I get to see their lives close up um that not many birds nest in places that I can see from from my house or where I am that but the starlings do that they have a regular nest in under the eaves of the house at the back of my house uh, so from my son's window, I can look directly across. And when I'm sitting in the garden, if I look up, they're directly above my head. So this year they've had they've had two broods already. I get to see the babies sticking their weird dinosaur heads out the hole and shouting for their mum and their dad. I get to see uh, the, the parents coming back and forth. And it's the one bird that I feel like I get to do a really close study of. Um, I've learned all of their little noises. And there's this when the when the parents return to the nest, they they make this like clacking noise. It's it almost sounds like a kind of door knocking as they come in. And um the way that they yeah, the the, the way that they 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 call as they as they they talk to each other and and it's a 
because it's terraces, it's a, it's a land of t of old telephone aerials and things here, TV aerials and um, wires, and so they love it. It's it's all perching places. So they sit on the chimneys and the and the the aerials and just let out their amazing. I can just never get over their their call. Their kind of arcade sound. Um, it's like I think I describe it at one point in some of my writing is like cheerful bombs dropping like it's that kind of it's it kind of steampunk like kind of post-apocalyptic they again they you know they fit this don't they there's this just wonderful like almost sci-fi um comedic circusy clack uh fireworky type noise about them that's like gunfire and 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 yeah arcades and money dropping and like it's just it's just brilliant it's just so it's just so so i i i love sitting and listening to that cheeky um just relentless um entertaining calls um and the way that they are sometimes catch the glimpses of them out the outside of the window swaggering down the street the way that they've got that brilliant like burglar swagger which fits <laughs> really well with our, our, our kind of like sort of urban lower class neighborhood there's there's a real kind of gangster swag to it which I just love and and then when you you kind of you you, you see them as sort of fairly unremarkable words until the sun hits them and then you're like they're like carrying galaxies on their back they're just the most yeah. incredible beautiful shimmering mystery of a thing like they're just gorgeous um and i think what's lovely about around here as well is that because they they nest regularly and they're they're kind of year-round um residents they have quite close groups um they, they 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 gather together they they we used to get incredible murmurations um over the common that's just down the road and i don't tend to see them very much anymore but they're still big family groups that sit around and they have a way of like communing with each other that when you watch them that feels really meaningful I always feel like when I'm watching Starling Society that there's there's something going on there there's something like profound and knowledgeable and that, that they have real relationships with each other and with the world even I I woke up the other morning I was quite struck by it where I, I opened the curtains it was quite early and I I I spotted a row of them on the on one of the the, the telephone wires and the sun was had sort of not not been up that long and they were all sat facing the the rising sun and sort of bowing there was a, there was sort of this weird they were all sort of bowing in turn and I know that we anthropomorphize these things and maybe it was nothing but there was something very poignant about these birds all sat watching the sun come up together um and and doing something that felt ritualistic that that really moved me so i i find them just brilliant complex entertaining characters and i just feel so lucky so privileged that they come and pick here to make their home that I I get to share that and share in that even from my window and my garden I think like just how amazing is that they're just brilliant they're fantastic birds and like you say when they're in their summer plumage when they've got that they've got galaxies on their backs you know with their purples and their greens and I mean they're stunning birds as well but you know I think maybe more in times 
not too distant times because obviously they're they're a declining species numbers are dropping hugely but they've never you know they have been unpopular particularly in places like the states where they're seen as a, an invasive species and we've talked about you know how they were introduced to america and on this podcast before you know whether you choose to believe that story that a man tried to introduce all the birds mentioned in the works of Shakespeare and released a hundred starlings in uh, Central Park in New York, and that's where they came from, apparently. But um, I didn't say that. wow, <laughs> yeah, um, I think some of these other releases weren't as successful, but the starlings were. I think there's truth in that. I hope there is because it's a great story. Um, as is the fact that because they have this complex language and they can mimic and they can make all sorts of funny noises. I like your arcade analogy. That's definitely true. It's not one I'd thought of before and the coins dropping. But yeah, you're right. Like the, the background chatter in an arcade is very oh. like starlings in a group. I love that. Um, but Mozart had a pet starling for three years and he loved it so much that when he when the starling died, Mozart actually had a funeral for it and he invited people to come and, and mourners attended and he'd written a commemorative poem and all because he lost his pet starling. Yeah. Oh, that's so. just endeared Mozart to me, like several million times over. I completely get it. <laughs> yeah, but they're, they're great birds. Right, let's move on. Let's talk about bird number three. three, three. <laughs> I don't know whether this is going to be unpopular or popular, but it is the humble wood pigeon. I just adore them. They are so stupid and so charming. <laughs> And so everywhere, I think what I love the most about the wood pigeon is that wherever you go, you will see one, wherever you go. And I like, I have a bit of a game in that I like to pretend it's the same pigeon. (laughs) 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 Basically, wherever you go, your pigeon goes to. There's something so comforting in it. I just, I love that. I've, I've had a fairly small restricted life and I've had times when I've been able to, to to spread my wings a bit more and 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 go a bit further afield and times when I haven't and I um am very lucky in the last last few years since I met my partner I I get to travel back and forth to Denmark a lot and in the garden in the Danish in our Danish house there is a pigeon who we call Pidge and a wood pigeon and I spend a great deal of time watching him. We we both do. And in fact, um, in most every morning, Fraser will give me a little update about what's going on in the house over there. And he will always tell me about what Pidge is doing. <laughs> um, and then when I'm here, I get to look out the window and, you know, there's a Pidge on the wall. And maybe it's, the, maybe it's not the same one, but I can convince myself that there is this... There is this, the pigeon pigeon acts as a as a connection between places and between people. There's just something so quietly unassuming about them, and the fact that they they do just provide this reassuring presence wherever we are, and they're just very calmly plodding on with their day, building their ridiculously inept nests and. Um, I love the relationships they have with each other. I still find 
pigeon courtship and and love in if you can call it that the way that they make for life the way that they bow to each other or the the way that he he likes to bow to her very formally and i <laughs> i watch all of this and just drink it in i just i i find it so utterly charming and again it's another one of those birds that when you actually stop to look at them they're stunning they're absolutely i i painted a pigeon the other day and the iridescence on their necks, the the, the, the weirdle beaks, the, the soft grey, and I find them beautiful. And I love that they're like your slightly not bright friend that <laughs> who just bumbles around and is full of good feeling and is just someone that you want to have around. I I will always have time for them. <laughs> And they're reliable, I guess, like like that friend as well. That's it. You just know they're going to show up for you when it counts. And they may not have a lot of very impressive things to say on culture or art or, or literature, but you know that they would show up and they would listen to you. And I, I just get that vibe from wood pigeons all the time. And and I think the other thing is that I find so comforting is that that is often the sound that accompanies me through my day when I'm having to rest a lot. Um, and I love I love having the window open because I feel like it provides this connection with the world outside. But that their their kind of soft call is is often the thing that I recall through the day. That's it's often the kind of soundtrack to my resting, and it just sounds it just for me it's just this kind of endlessly reassuring note of like I'm here, and um and and you know there's a company in that and. I, I, yeah, it always, always does my heart good. Those moments where I try to take a lot of moments through the day where I just stop and breathe and listen. And often the sound that comes to me will be a wood pigeon. And there is something really special in that. Like, it's a bit like how you overlook your own breath in that if you just take the time to listen and hear that, there is something meaningful in that, I think, and something special. Yeah, that's great. As you were talking there, you reminded me of there's a bit in your in your book where I think does your son come home from school or something and he's been learning about pigeons and he says something like everybody says pigeons are boring, but they're not because they've got two sets of eyelids. Yeah, he was it's not unusual, is it, for, for birds to have two sets of eyelids, but he'd he'd learnt this about pigeons. And uh, pigeons were, were a big part of his school life in that he he took a lot of interest in the pigeons that came to the playground. Um at playtime he noticed that there were always pigeons in the playground. So he named them. And he was very little at this point. I used to take him to school on my mobility scooter with him walking along next to me, holding on. And he he was a very serious little chap. He's still quite a serious young man. But um, he would often stop and go, oh, that's Brian. Or, <laughs> oh, look, Colin. I know that one. And he would he'd name them all. And he would, in his very deadpan, serious five-year-old way, <laughs> tell me the names of the pigeons. Little did he know that his mother would be doing the same with a wood pigeon in Denmark <laughs> 10 years later. It must have been a habit that stuck, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I love that you mentioned their nests as well, because how on earth they managed to be so successful oh, in just... terms of the fact that they're everywhere, like you say, when their nests 
look like the final stages of a game of Kaplunk. There was a couple the other week that I think they had, they'd managed three sticks, which they had balanced very precariously in a sort of bit of a corner behind a drain pipe. And and the female was sitting on it very optimistically while the, the man flapped around with a fourth stick, you know, and it's like, it's like, this isn't going to work, guys. I mean, good effort, but... You're going to need more than four sticks and a drain pipe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Enough of this tomfoolery. Let's move on. Tell us about your fourth choice. Bird number four. So my fourth choice, and I, I thought quite hard about this one, is the wren. And I felt like this was an important one for me because I think they're the bird that often surprises me the most around here. Um, again, it's a bird I don't often see around here because they're so secretive, but oh my God, is it one I hear. And I think it's it's the fact that they're just so disruptive, wrens. I think that's what I love about them. Like I can be, I, I spend a lot of time when I can, when I'm well enough, I will go out on my mobility scooter around the streets and I can't stay out for all, all that long, but I, I like to have a little wander around and it can be a really quiet day and you can, you know, be looking around you and then suddenly left field from like nowhere, you from a hedge somewhere, comes this just astonishing ear-splitting song. Wrens seem to be able to just cleave the air into and I love that. I love these little unassuming brown blobs that you occasionally see one bombast you like a little brown ping pong ball, but my God, can they sing. And just the way that they can stop you in your tracks and stop, like almost freeze frame a moment with just incredible attention stealing bellow of, of, <laughs> of sound and noise. And the fact that they come from just these, these I, I think I, I read something that like wrens weigh less than a pound coin. Like they're just, they're basically like, made of air aren't they they're like just tiny little fragile bones and so it just feels like it defies all the laws of physics and life that something so fragile and delicate can produce this just almighty racket i just i just find them i find that really inspiring i'm also quite small i am often overlooked but I have a big voice. I have a big voice that with stuff to say. And and I think the Wren has become a bit of a role model in that respect. In that <laughs> it gives me the courage to be loud and take up space and disrupt the morning and, and, and not be prepared to be this humble, shy little bird, but to be something that can yeah disrupt and make the world stop in its tracks. I just a huge respect for that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's strange, isn't it? Because they they are such a common bird, but you, you're right. Because they have that tendency to, to skirt around in, in the undergrowth and called troglodytes, troglodytes, aren't they? Because they're little cave dwellers. And But then I think you described them as being shouty little egomaniacs. <laughs> These two little things just don't seem to add up. Yeah, and it's I like that it's quite low down as well, because I, I spend my life quite low to the ground. I'm, I'm either tend to be either on my mobility scooter or in a wheelchair. So I'm, I'm, I sort of exist on a slightly lower plane. It's the same height as children spend their lives. So there's something that nice about birds that come at you at that level as well. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're coming at me where I am, which is right low down. So it feels like they're kind of on my territory. Just so you can hear them more acutely, <laughs> you know, they're right yeah. at your ear level. <laughs> 
And did you know that on average, the male wren will build six nests and then tour his potential mate around them all until she chooses the one she likes? I mean, this is it. I mean, what brilliant example of the way that you should treat your beloved. Like, <laughs> And their nests are beautiful as well, aren't they? They're, they're such delicate, beautiful little things. So I can definitely get on board with Mrs. Wren that. It sounds like a waste of a lot of energy to me. But, you know, fair play to the <laughs> Wren. I think I would definitely be a single Wren if, if that was, <laughs> if, I, if I came back to life in Wren form, because that sounds like far too much effort for me. Right. Come on then, let's let's move on and we'll talk about your fifth and final bird. Bird number five. Yeah, so the birds that I've talked about so far are very much with me where I am. They, they are around me, they, they feel companionable, they feel close. Um, but my last bird is the buzzard, which I think is probably the opposite of all of those things because... We get buzzards over here. There's a, a graveyard just down the road, which I, I, I visit quite often, and they nest in one of the tallest trees there. But whenever I see them, they are about as far away as they could be, and me still see them. They they circle around above the housing estates here, and I've learnt that, that very distinctive cry that echoes across the sky Um which always stops me if I'm sat in the garden and you you hear that sound and you you stop and you look up and you can see them so far above and that slow swoop and and um, often being trying to chased off by magpies or or crows and things who seem to hate them. But there's something I just find so transcendent about that in that they they are the bird that is close and familiar, but so distant so kind of I, I never get to see them up close even with like you know my 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 binoculars with my my zoom lens on my telescope they're still this this infinitely distant thing and yet they're here I spent an awful lot of my especially my early life and and at times when I've been the most restricted dreaming of escape it's it's not always been easy to be satisfied with where I am and um although that I've you know, built a really close relationship with my environment and and something that I that gives me a lot of joy now. There has been times where I've just longed for more and longed to be able to just leave uh, to, to to find somewhere new to sort of rise above it and rise above myself and my limitations and my restrictions. And I think the buzzard represents that just enormous power to to just ascend and and it feels like they've left us behind in a way they feel like they've they've almost they're better than us they they don't need to live with us anymore they they're they're up there in the in the heavens i can't help but ascribe some kind of secret knowledge and wisdom and experience to that which i think i long for and that that feels like it represents just something that I could reach for or that you know that I could I could lift off and join them and and find whatever it is that that is that is missing and and so there is something sort of full of yearning and and longing and yeah just that way that it makes your heart lift something that sort of pulls you upward and towards a different kind of life a different kind of viewpoint um, which I think just I find so compelling about the buzzard, and I will often um, I've I've skirted around the their nesting site in the hope of finding a feather or 
just something to connect me with with the buzzard on a bit more of a tangible level but no they are separate in a way that I find so mysterious and beautiful and I like that that acts as a counter to some of the more up close and personal birds that we do have these birds that are still they still feel transcendent they still feel myth-like they still feel something that untouchable that we can't quite reach and I'm glad that we have that I'm glad that we have those experiences that don't let us get too close that don't let us get too familiar um that still keep us at arm's length a little bit because it gives us something I think then to yearn for and connect to and in a different way so I just I just think they're incredibly powerful birds I love them You've spoken about them so beautifully there. You know, the call is just so simple, but like you mentioned there, it's usually so high up and they're soaring in the blue sky on a sunny day. They, they look majestic. And I think they do bring a bit of the wild to us, don't they? It just that, that yeah. call just sounds like something that's been heard through the ages in wild places. Yeah, the fact that they're a bird of prey, I think just feels exciting you know it feels there's something really not tame about them something really that, that some some element of wildness that has escaped some of the more domestic bird scenes that we get that they're that they're still very much in wild territory yeah. and i and i love that well they used to be you know thought of as a rubbish falconer's bird because you couldn't tame them really they were probably too wild or they just perceived them to be too lazy I think I think they used to be thought of as a as a, a lazy stupid stubborn bird didn't they because you know they just <laughs> ate dead things and which isn't strictly true and refused to take instruction yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly so yeah just because they didn't do what you wanted them to do doesn't mean that they were stubborn Absolutely. and stupid no they're fantastic majestic call of the wild wonderful choice to end on and for a really good reason as well so that's your five birds josie and they're five great choices cruelly i normally make people choose one one bird to become wow. your demon on your shoulder you know your philip pullman companion through life you know your spirit guide on your quest to survive the environmental apocalypse so which of the five species would you choose i think it would have to be the starling i think i think just for its wisdom and its cheekiness and it, its hidden beauty and its relationship and its connection the way it connects to the world around it i think yeah I think I'll go with a starling. Sorry, other birds. Yeah, we'll not tell Pidge. No, I know. Sorry, Pidge. <laughs> well, Josie, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a, a treat to meet you and to, to talk to you about your birds. So your new secret book, when will we be able to hear about that? Yep, I'm hoping there'll be some news about that in the autumn. It's really exciting. It's a little bit of a, a shift from my my memoir style writing. It's something a little bit more mysterious, a little bit more story led, and it's aimed at uh, younger people too. So I'm hoping with this book to help uh, a different audience connect with the world around them in a different way. Um, so yeah, hoping to have news of that soon, but um, watch this space. It's going to be really exciting. Oh, great. That sounds fantastic. I'm looking forward to it already. So if you don't already follow 
Josie on Twitter or Instagram, then please do check out her blog, Bimblings. And if you haven't read it already, pick up a copy of her memoir, A Still Life. It's a beautiful book. So Josie, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Kit. Thank you so much. Well, that's your lot for now. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Josie, folks. I know I did. Don't have any new episodes on the immediate horizon, but keep your eyes and ears peeled and hopefully there'll be some more episodes before the end of the year. Take care, everyone. Bye for now.